Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Danielle Bamber, Investment Manager from Tilney's Manchester office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about the current economic environment and opportunities and risks for 2020. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, shall we begin with a roundup of economic and political environment in 2019? Absolutely. Well, a lot happened in 2019, so maybe I'll just focus on some of the, the key events that helped impact markets rather than all of those dogs that, that didn't necessarily bark. I think the main theme of 2019, we have to cast our minds back quite a way as we start 2020, but I think one of the biggest drivers was the move in monetary policy. If we think back to the start of last year, we just had the Fed hiking rates, perhaps erroneously, at the end of 2018. Markets were in a little bit of turmoil on the back of that. We had that sharp fall into December. And really, the theme through 2019 was a shift from monetary policy tightening, which is not necessarily positive for the economy. Then we saw it go back to a neutral position. So central banks went from saying, we're going to hike rates to don't worry, we're not going to do anything. Then later on in the year, they went even further and started actively cutting interest rates, reintroducing QE. So if you look at the US, last year they now had they had uh, three interest rate cuts. Europe cut interest rates further and restarted QE. So really a very dramatic shift, and we saw that impact markets quite significantly. The other factors driving markets, we had US and China, the reignition of the trade war. Going into last year, we thought the deal was effectively done. There was a little bit of miscommunication and suddenly uh, the trade war was back on fresh tariffs, fresh escalation. And that was really globally the key themes. A little close to home, of course, we had Brexit, some of the uncertainty that that, that caused. That interestingly caused a bit of a, a disconnect between the UK and the rest of the world from around about May time onward. And that was quite a significant uh, event as well. Uh, More broadly, some of the fundamentals, we did see earnings growth stall. In fact, for the full year, earnings overall contracted around 3%. In the UK, we actually went through a small earnings recession in Q2 Q2 and Q3. And globally, we saw economic activity stall as well. So we often talk on the podcast about the Purchasing Manager Index. This is uh, a survey globally of whether companies think they're expanding or contracting. Throughout last year, we saw those surveys dip into contractionary territory before flatlining. And a lot of the associated data, particularly around industrial production, also dipped and and contracted as well. So really, the theme was around monetary stimulus. That really helped markets rocket. But a lot of that is on anticipation of, of a potential recovery. The year itself was actually fairly challenging from an economic point of view, despite what markets did. So as you mentioned, UK markets have rallied over the past 12 months and since the general election. What is the outlook for 2020? Well, you're exactly right. UK equities had a pretty good year overall, but they did lag the wider market. So if you look at the full year in sterling terms, UK equities were up 16%, which is a very comfortable number. 
Global equities, though, were up 22%. So throughout the year, there's actually been a little bit of a lag. And even with the, the post-election fill-up, there's really been a, a little bit more that can still come out of equities, I think. And I'd say the outlook is pretty positive overall. Some of the UK political uncertainty has now uh, softened. We've moved away from the sense of a disorderly no-deal Brexit. If you look at valuations, they're actually pretty compelling. UK equities look relatively cheap, slightly cheap compared to their own history. They look pretty cheap compared to the rest of the world as well. And with the new government, bearing in mind going into the general election, both main parties have promised fiscal stimulus and fiscal stimulus can be positive as well. So overall, I think the outlook for the UK is pretty positive. We've had some of that realised, but I think it's important to highlight that's just a small amount of the the broader underperformance. So there's still a lot further for the UK to go. Um, There are, of course, several dependencies. The UK is a global economy. Um, A lot of UK companies uh, invest overseas. They get revenues and profits from overseas. So any impact on the global trade environment is likely to have an impact on the UK. And of course, Brexit hasn't gone away. So really, we're potentially looking at more of a a muddle-through scenario. Clients are still asking what Brexit means for their investments. What effects will Brexit have on asset classes and portfolios now we know this will be happening in the short term? Well, I think it's the certainty or at least the the reduced uncertainty that's been helping markets and will continue to help markets. Really, Brexit is impacting through two key factors. Firstly, it's UK domestic assets, so UK equities and UK government bonds, but also through the currency. And for the last few years, that the fall in sterling has had the effect of boosting overseas holdings, particularly global asset, global equity assets. That's been a strong positive. We could see some of that starting to go into reverse. And I think it's most important to say that the acute uncertainty, so the point that we might have had uh, a disorderly no-deal Brexit in Q4, was really worrying markets, worrying businesses. That led to paralysis. It led to a lack of investment. That, that fall we've seen in productivity and some of that has, has effectively lifted. There is still, of course, a lot of uncertainty, but uncertainty, as we often highlight, is not a bad thing. It's that uncertainty you get paid a risk premium for. And I think the outlook is for some sort of muddle through. Uh, and what is most important to highlight, the big change now compared to the middle of last year or even earlier last year, is the government now has a majority And it was that lack of majority that's caused all of the political gymnastics that we've seen over the last 12 months and really fuels that uncertainty, the fact that you could have a a no deal, disorderly no deal by accident. Now, whatever happens, we at least have a majority. The government is able to enact enact legislation and deal proactively. Um, Regards of your views, which way that goes, having a majority in government adds to, to some level of confidence and gives us an idea that that might enable markets uh, and and companies to muddle through. I think the most important element that we're looking out for is to avoid this cliff-edge mentality that we had last year. That could add back some of the problems. We know through legislation we're likely to have a standoff at the end of this year. It's going to be important to see, though, the messaging that comes out from government. The indications at this stage are that messaging is going to be a lot softer, it's going to be more positive, on becoming one of the best trading partners in the world. If we do get some of that antagonism, though, that could the, the risk is that it spooks businesses and we don't see that investment coming through. Uh, but in terms of what it means for markets and portfolios, I think that the direction of travel is still positive for equities. 
and positive for, for sterling. That's likely to be a headwind for overseas holding by sterling investors. It also looks like government bonds will probably come under pressure as well. There is little or no interest earned by clients when they hold cash, which has led to a number of clients last year topping up portfolios to gain a higher yield. Where do we predict interest rates going globally and domestically? Well, you're exactly right that unfortunately savers have been the main casualty of the post-global financial crisis environment. Interest rates have fallen, which punishes those reliant on uh, the risk-free rate, which is effectively the base rate uh, and the returns that you can get in the bank. And that has forced many people up the risk spectrum. Um, unfortunately, if you look at where the market is currently pricing, it doesn't look like interest rates are going up anytime soon. In fact, at the moment, globally, uh, markets are pricing in interest rates to be cut further. In the UK, there's an implication of another quarter point cut this year to 0.5%. I think some of that is markets yearning for monetary policy stimulus. We've talked before about this Pavlovian response. Markets love money being pumped in. And I think some of that is, is wishful thinking. From my point of view, I'm not sure these cuts will necessarily happen. Um, if you look at what central banks have been highlighting for 12 months or more now, they've been talking a lot about the need for fiscal stimulus. The evidence is that monetary policy is starting to become ineffective, particularly at these very low rates. And what central banks have done is they've indicated much higher hurdles to movement in either direction. So the implication is that central banks, both uh, in the US and the UK, the sort of main banks that we look at, but it's also true of the others, I think they need to see a significant deterioration in data before they introduce more stimulus. But against that, they're probably willing to, to allow the data to improve quite significantly before they look to hike those rates. So overall, no change in the near term, but I think it is going to be very data dependent. I'd agree with that. You've already mentioned, Ben, the US-China trade agreements are still lingering on. What is our view on this in 2020? Well, I, I think, like many people, we're wary, given our experience 12 months ago, we could have said exactly the same thing. We could almost just cut and paste uh, whatever we recorded last year in this year. But as you say, we are looking towards having some sort of deal. Phase one, so initially rolling back some of the, the most recent tariffs uh, and China reintroducing some imports, are likely to be signed this month. Uh, followed by a phase two tariff deal that's likely to be much more broadly encompassing. Importantly, it is much more in the interest of both countries now to do a deal. China is, is suffering quite significantly un, under the tariffs. And of course, in the US, President Trump needs some short-term wins. He's got uh, re-election uh, potential later this year. So I think he's really looking for some sort of win. Against that, though, miscommunication is always a risk. It was some of the fine details last year that initially derailed the deal and then led to the re-escalation. So it's important not to assume it's a done deal and not to underestimate the fact that it could go sideways. But that aside, the potential for US and China to, to come some sort of accord does still seem quite high. I think what's more on my radar now is the broader US protectionism that hasn't gone anywhere. And as we've highlighted before, we could now see that pivot potentially from China maybe to Europe. We still have the auto tariffs being threatened. And more recently, there's this brewing, um, brewing conflict potentially between France and the US over digital taxes on the likes of Google and Amazon. The potential for retaliation 
there. And against that as well, we've also got the, the broader US foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East. And it's worth remembering that in the US, the president has much more power to influence foreign policy and trade policy than domestic policy. And given some of the, the domestic political challenges in the US, we might see uh, President Trump looking to, to assert his authority elsewhere. So <clears throat> even as US and China, the, the, that trade issue starts to resolve, I think we could see other issues uh, cropping up globally. Aside from the US and China trade agreements, what do we see as the main opportunities and risks for investors? Well, I think it's important to remember that markets are forward looking. And much through last year, they've anticipated that recovery. We really need to start that to see, start seeing that coming through. Uh, I think what's going to be interesting is the interplay between monetary policy and fiscal policy. So a lot of the opportunities come from some of the normalisation of trade globally, some of the economic growth starting to stabilise and improve from, from its stalled position, whilst there's also, particularly in the UK and even in emerging markets, valuation opportunities as well. It is likely that monetary policy in most parts of the world, possibly excluding the US, has gone as far as it can do, or we might start to see fiscal stimulus coming through. That's something we haven't seen outside of the US for many years. Against that, interestingly, fiscal policy is starting to fade in the US. At the end of 2017, there was a big uh, round of tax cuts that introduced fiscal stimulus. That's starting to roll over and become a headwind now. So there we might see a little bit more monetary policy stimulus unless President Trump tries to energise his base with, with fresh tax cuts with a view to getting himself re-elected. So the opportunities still re revolve around that potential for economic recovery uh, boosted by, by stimulus. Um, I think the risks remain geopolitical concerns, fresh protectionism, but also there is a, a risk that the global economy remains stalled. Global economic recovery ultimately relies on businesses becoming more confident, able to reinvest in their own businesses rather than hoarding cash. So it's a sentiment change we need, uh, as well as change in economic fundamentals. I'm also starting to, to get my head around the risk of potential inflation either later this year or early next year. It's not something that markets have really worried about for a while, but it's worth reiterating when you have extremely loose monetary policy, if you introduce fiscal policy into economies that are fairly tight, that is a recipe for inflation. And there's broadly a sort of nine to 12 month lag between these, these effects. So it's certainly something to keep our eye on. So given those main opportunities and risks such as inflation, how will we be reflecting this in portfolio positioning? Well, what we've done recently is to move slightly more positive on equities, really as the, the chances of a hard, no deal, disorderly Brexit dissipated, we started adding a bit more to equities, particularly UK equities, and within that favouring more of a balance between growth stocks and some of the uh, out of favour value stocks. So we've been broadly increasing our positions there. We remain wary on any part of our portfolio that has excessive interest rate sensitivity, which is mostly longer dated government bonds. Instead, we prefer uh, what's called credit, so uh, debt to, to corporations that look relatively healthy as well. We will, of course, move the portfolios around as needed. We, the key point is to say hope is not a strategy. So even though we do expect some economic growth to start coming through, we're unlikely to move our portfolios until we see those effects. But of course, that's not going to be the primary effect. I'm not going to wait until all the good news is in the price. Uh, it, it's more the derivative um, position. So some of the details of the PMI figures, some of the finer detail signals 
for that recovery coming through. If that does come through, then we will act to potentially have more of a pro-cyclical bias. Are you able to give a summary of the key outlook points for 2020, please? Absolutely. Well, really, much as monetary policy stimulus in 2019 boosted markets in anticipation of an economic recovery, now we're looking closely for that economic recovery to manifest in the underlying data, potentially in the UK, accompanied by fiscal stimulus. Some of the positive news is already in the price. We still see markets having further to go, particularly in the UK, where markets already look relatively cheap. The main challenges come from either this economic bounce failing to gain traction, rising risks in trade or geopolitics, and potentially inflation later this year. But overall, we expect markets will continue to move higher as fundamentals recover, really on a muddle-through basis rather than a Goldilocks scenario. Ben, we have had a question in from one of our listeners. They have asked if you could shed any light on the complex subject of the different types of bonds, whether that be government, high-yield, rated corporates, in the context of the 10-year bull market, and exceptionally low yields would be appreciated. How are general retail deposits likely to relate to these bonds? Uh, I can certainly try it. It's a really interesting area. It is a little bit more technical than we usually cover on this podcast. So for the uninitiated, bonds are effectively different types of debt, usually issued by a, a government or a company. And whereas with equity, you're mostly focused on the profitability of a company because you're a part owner, with a bond, you're more interested in the ability of a government or company to pay you back. Um, and because companies are inherently more risky than governments, uh, you, you functionally get paid a premium, uh, so get paid a, a spread over government bonds to invest in them. Uh, and as you'd expect, the riskier the company, the higher yield that you get, and also the higher chance that that, that entity uh, defaults. So very broadly speaking, it, it moves from government bonds, which are typically the safest, through to investment-grade credit, which is investment in relatively stable companies that are pretty likely to pay you back, all the way through to high-yield bonds, which are the riskier companies. Uh, if you invest in them, you call them high-yield. If you don't, you call them junk bonds. Uh, and they tend to be riskier, but tend to offer you a high yield. And what you're always looking at is how's that yield compare to the likelihood of, of default. And in terms of deposit rates, deposit rates tend to follow short-dated government bonds. Longer-dated government bonds, so if you give uh, lend to the UK government for, say, 10 years, you would typically pay slightly more just because of the uncertainty. But really, most of the government bonds are some sort of forecast of all of the short-term rates. Technically, you can get a little bit more accurate with swaps, but they're roughly a good guide. So the deposit rate will generally follow what government bonds are doing. As we said in the main podcast, at the moment, most of those are hovering around the 0.75% mark overall. So really, I think that's that's where we, we see the position uh, in terms of deposit rates. So no real move anytime soon. Uh, the listener is exactly right, though, that yields are extremely low, particularly after the 10-year bull market following the global financial crisis. In fact, if you look on a chart, it's more like a 30-year bull run. You've had almost equity-like returns over that time from what is uh, safe, considered a safe haven asset class, not always on a mark-to-market basis, of course. So taking all that together... Most government bonds will be constrained by the the zero lower bound. Yields themselves are extremely low, which means that if interest rates rise, your holdings in government bonds could be at risk. And certainly that's been 
our position. That's why we have uh, not very much exposure to assets with interest rate sensitivity. Instead, again, as I, I did sort of highlight in, in the main podcast, um, we prefer credit, so you get a bit of a spread over government bonds. Take, for example, the UK, you've got 0.75% yield on your government bond. Then if you invest in investment-grade credit in the UK, you get just over 1% additional premium for taking on that risk. So actually, about one, just over 1% and 0.75% gives you about one85 which is slightly ahead of where inflation is at the moment. So you can get a real positive return for taking that additional credit risk. And that is an area I think is, in, is attractive. Interestingly, we've also, on a tactical basis, looked to increase some of our high yield exposure, again, in very limited amounts and only in select portfolios. But there we see that that spread moved from about 3% to about 4% uh, over the course of 12 or 18 months. And in an environment where you don't see a catastrophic failure of the global economy and we expect default rates to remain low, remember, of course, companies are earning very high profits at the moment. Borrowing is very cheap. With the default rate low, that to us looks like a relatively attractive area. And one way to look at the spread is effectively a buffer from rising rates. So as as it stands today, I think if you look at government bonds, rates look very unattractive and on a strategic basis, we'd expect to rise from here. But by investing in credit, you can offset some of that by taking a little bit more credit risk, i.e. the the risk that companies default, but you get paid for that as well. There are some additional risks because you're investing in companies. There is slightly higher correlation at points between that credit component and the equity component. So you need to manage that very carefully. But as, as it stands today, I'm much more comfortable taking a little bit more credit risk and a bit less interest rate sensitivity, which is why in the portfolios we have short dated credit, so not very much interest exposure, more credit and a little bit of high yield as well, just because of where spreads are positioned. Great. Thank you, Ben, for your time and comments. We'll be back again in February with a new episode. If you have any questions or feedback or comments, please email us at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thank you for listening.